welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz, and I am your host. I am your dining companion. I am the sarcophagus that lies beneath the food pyramid. You know, my son is always asking me to be the bad guy when we play together, and I keep saying stuff like, let's work together. I don't I don't want to be the bad guy. And I don't think that life has to be built in opposition to whatever the quote unquote bad guys are doing. But I do think a lot about what the good guys are doing. I have kind of a simplistic morality on this, I think. Maybe I watched too many Saturday morning cartoons growing up. And while I wouldn't necessarily slap an Autobot sticker on my car, that's a Transformers reference uh, that I probably don't need to explain to anyone listening to this, I do know that um, being a good human being and community member, what that means in practical and non-cartoony ways. To that end, I am very interested and I'm very inspired by people who really live their principles. Ted Lasso is often the person I bring up, even though he's a fictional character. He's someone who sees the best in people. I think the first season of the show, which I loved, uh, was really kind of a thought experiment. And it asked, what if someone relentlessly, almost religiously sees the best in people? I believe, I really believe that can be transformative. There are some other idealists that I think of a lot, real ones, the kind of people who live principle-based lives. Mr. Rogers, for example, Carl Rogers, Carl Ransom Rogers, another Mr. Rogers, uh, who was an early humanistic psychologist, uh, Bell Hooks, Tich Nhat Hanh. We tend to think of toughness or being a badass in terms of intensity, but I believe that the real litmus test is consistency, to make choices that are hard, let alone inconvenient, and to make those choices day in, day out. That takes a deep kind of strength. So while I don't want to oversell my guest on today's episode, I do think very highly of him. I think he lives as principle-centered a life as anyone I know, and I think he's one of the good guys. And what he's asking is how we can live in a way that offers the most freedom and choice possible, but that means for both of us. You know, freedom for me and for thee. Ryan Andrews is an author, he is an activist, a nutrition expert, he is a former competitive bodybuilder, he has master's degrees in nutrition and exercise physiology, he's completed training to be a registered dietitian, he's also studied sustainable food systems, Ryan has written for Time, Muscle and Fitness, Men's Health, Precision Nutrition, and plenty more. He's also in this long CV accumulated over a thousand hours volunteering at organic farms and nonprofit food recovery organizations. And when I say that he wrote the book on nutrition, I mean that he co-authored the first really serious nutrition textbook I ever read. I know Ryan as a soft-spoken, humble person, and I think that the Autobots would want him on their team. I know so. Ryan most recently wrote Swole Planet, which I will link to in the show notes. If you are a reducitarian, if you are thinking about minimizing your ecological footprint and still chasing those sweet gains in the gym, this one is for you. For me, Swole Planet helped me bridge the gap a little bit in terms of my eating and talking to Ryan, I shit you not, made me want to be a better human being.
Before we begin, I want to shout out our sponsor, Othership. Othership is a guided breathwork app. Sessions can wake you up, calm you down, trip you out, man, if that's your kind of thing, uh, but really can get you into any state of mind that you need. I really have gotten a lot out of the app, and I have to say that it's worked for me in ways that meditation apps have not, or other meditation apps, we can say. It's uh, beautifully done. It is accessible. It is the right, I think for me, I don't want to speak for you, for me, it is the right uh, combination of having to stay present uh, because of the time breath work uh, and enough feedback, but um, not over the top. You know, what I recommend is just trying it out. You can do so for free by visiting othership.us. All right. Now it's time for my interview with Ryan Andrews. Let's get into it. I guess the first thing is I feel like we have to put a warning label on this episode. Uh, you know, if you're listening, nobody's going to try to change your mind or your uh, belief system or take away your precious nutrients, uh, <laughs> particularly protein. But uh, we're going to talk to you about uh, if there are any changes um, that can be made and, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, but that will keep all that good stuff for you while at the same time uh, reducing the environmental cost. Is that a fair appraisal? Yeah. I mean, it's about considering your own health and strength and resiliency and also considering the entire food system and the planet's strength and resiliency as well. So just looking at it as one, one connected uh, organism rather than just yourself. This is a, a helpful shift. Well, maybe let's just uh, start with you. Uh, please introduce yourself. Ryan Andrews, and we go way back, Jeff. So uh, I, I've had a long kind of windy road in the world of wellness and nutrition and health. And it's, it's really been a, a huge part of most of my life. And I always, I almost kind of, when I look back, it's almost like I had different chapters. So I had my teens, which was my competitive bodybuilding chapter. And that was my introduction into thinking about food and health and wellness, if you want to call competitive bodybuilding health and wellness. Um, but it, it did teach me a lot about physique transformation and, and what needs to be done to do that. And then my 20s was a different chapter of really focusing on higher education and the science behind nutrition and uh, movement and health. And then as I approached my 30s, it was more about working with clients, spending time on farms, learning more about the food system as a whole. So it, it went from very narrow of thinking about me and my body composition, and then started to expand over the years and consider animals and farm workers and ecosystems uh, and all of that stuff. So that's, those are kind of the chapters of, of my life when it comes to nutrition and health. Uh, you know, I'd like to hear you describe your own ethos, but I'm also really curious about how this developed, you know, what were the earliest seeds of this and how did it wind up um, influencing your thinking over the years? Uh, a couple early things uh, happened. So I remember having this this feeling when I was a few weeks away from doing a teen and collegiate nationals, a bodybuilding contest in the U.S. And I was just years into the competitive bodybuilding at this time. And uh, my whole life revolved around my physique. It was, it, it just, when I was going to wake up, what I was going to eat, 
when I slept, I did my tanning, my posing, my lifting, my cardio, every, and everything just revolved around like me having the optimal physique. And I remember having this little gnawing sensation deep down of, ah, I don't, I don't know if I like this much focus on just myself. It seems a little unbalanced. So that was one early memory I have. That was in my teens, so a long, long time ago. And then the next epiphany that really was the gateway into thinking about anything beyond uh, my own personal nutri nutrition was in uh, graduate school, so early 20s. And I was learning about using animals in research because in grad school, we were doing some research and you had to get certified and learning about animal ethics. And so I went through this little unit and I was thinking, gosh, I don't know if I really agree with using animals in research, if it's not essential research. And I was just kind of processing this with a lab assistant. And she said, well, do you eat meat? And I said, yeah. She said, well, you're involving animals in, in your life every day. Uh, and it might not be an essential thing for you. And it was it was one of those lightning bolt epiphany moments for me where I thought, she's right. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if I'm comfortable with this. And so I remember from that day forward, it was, uh, I just stopped eating meat. It didn't seem like any kind of major shift at all. It just seemed like the right next step for me. But, um, you know, uh, being vegan really feels political. And mm -hmm. I think it off, often is, but, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to unpack, you know, some people, the way they've messaged around it uh, is kind of clunky. When did you start, you know, advocating for this stuff? What have you seen in terms of messaging? Where have people who are well-intentioned kind of put other people off in their messaging? Well, I guess to be clear as well, I mean, I went through a phase with my eating where I was, I, I identified as a vegan and I was, my circles were vegan people <laughs> and it was kind of my life. And that seemed like the way to do things. Um, I, over the past maybe six to seven years or so, I, I don't necessarily like that label anymore. And like you mm -hmm. said, I think it has a lot of baggage and I, I don't really like the idea of saying that there's one way of living or eating and that's the right way of living and eat, right way to live and eat for everybody in all situations in all uh, contexts. So, um, I and I think that's what, in my experience, some people who identify as vegan start to do is they say, "Well, this feels really good for me in my situation in my life. Uh, it should feel good for everybody <laughs> based on where where they're at in their lives." And it. And you could, I mean, from a very narrow focus, it might not be right for somebody because they don't have access to good vegan foods around them or they can't afford good vegan foods. To the very global of, I actually don't think trying to eliminate animals from the food system is a very sustainable thing to do long term. So that's been kind of off-putting for me over the years with, with some people in the vegan communities, kind of putting that energy of like, this is the way and there's no discussion about it. Like, this is it. We found it the right thing to do. It's going to solve all of our problems and everybody's going to live happily ever after. I don't think that's true for a lot of reasons. Yeah. I wish, uh, I wish there were a version of that. Hey, just do this one thing. Sorted. Uh, but, uh, for better or worse, life doesn't quite work that way. So it sounds, okay. 
Um, you know, listening to your background, it sounds like when you get into something, you really integrate it and you write it like right down to the DNA. You really think about how, how do I live this, uh, I guess this ethos do it like, these are my beliefs. And I think that's yeah. important and it's, and it's, it's rare. Um, and probably because it's so hard to do without compromise. So, so maybe bring me up to speed. Cause when I met you, uh, I don't know when that was maybe like late aughts it would have been. Um, I think you, you still identified as vegan. Um, and now, now it's shifted. So how do you describe where you're at to people? How do you, I guess that's kind of how we communicate with people nowadays is having some sort of a short, like, here's my brand or like, <laughs> here's, here's my short mission. Uh, I always struggle with it. Um, if I had to come up with a concise way of identifying myself right now, I'd say I'm, I'm a vegan leaning, uh, sustainability seeker. So I'm really, mm -hmm. and when I say sustainability, a lot of people think the planet and the environment, and yes, that's a huge part of it, but, uh, sustainability really at every level of the food system. So I'm, I want, I want the food system to be good for workers. I want it to be good for the planet. I want it to be good for us, the eaters. I want it to be good for animals. So every everything involved in the food system, I want it to be sustainable and um, ethical. So that's kind of, that's always on my mind when I'm thinking about my own food choices, when I'm talking about nutrition, when I'm helping a client with nutrition, when I'm writing about nutrition, that's that's kind of the, the filter I'm, I'm using when I'm creating what I'm going to say is like, how is this going to influence all of those factors of the food system? And that brings us into systems thinking and, and quite a bit of complexity. You know, you, you pull one lever and it has, has an impact and we, we've seen this. It's so easy to um, overdo it um, yeah. when we try to make a radical uh, shift in any one direction. There's, there's fallout from that. So let's, um, <laughs> in the interest of, of keeping it, you know, simple, talk to me about, about your book. Talk to me about Swole Planet and why you wrote it and, and what you're really covering in it. Yeah, I mean, based on everything we've been talking about so far, maybe the listeners can kind of see my path was leading to creating a resource like this, uh, based on how I see the world. So I, I had spent so many years in fitness and sports, nutrition and wellness. And I also started to spend a lot of time in the world of sustainability and food systems and food studies and farming. And I just felt like there was a major gap between those worlds. It was like people just wanting to get strong and perform well, not thinking at all about anything else. And then people like really trying to make things better and the environment and food systems, not really thinking about like necessarily personal health or personal health or wellness. I wanted to try to bridge the gap between the two worlds. Like what can we do with our eating that benefits both of those things? So we're not just totally abandoning our efforts of our own health and strength. And we're just going to say, I'm going to live in a yurt and live on like sprouted spelt or something. And that's it. And you're like dying from malnutrition. Um, but also we don't go the other direction. Just say, all I care about is getting as, as swole as possible. And I'm not going to think at all about anything else uh, on the planet. And that was my main intention with the book. So I came up with some hopefully clear, but, uh, actions that have some wiggle room for each person so it's not drawing a line in the sand and saying like this is it you have to do this it, it kind of gives a nudge and uh an area to focus on but 
it allows for some wiggle room for that person. And I did that with eating and with movement and then with some other things in, in lifestyle changes. Yeah. And I mean, that was the first thing that really struck me about the book. It was so not dogmatic and it's all, you know, and I, I'm sure that was something you really bore in mind. It's so easy, um, to get pulled down into one of those rabbit holes. And it's, you know, it's, it's alienating. Like, um, people feel a lot of, a lot of times identity is based around the people, uh, the way that people eat. And I see that with a lot of, you know, manly men who where carnivore is like part of their identity and the idea, um, that you might, like, you might have a real sort of objection to that is, is almost sort of offensive to some people, I think. And, and so it's funny, it's like a weird sort of hill to die on, especially since we can get protein from different places. Um, especially since there are more nutrients than protein, <laughs> right? There's, it's a little more complex. <laughs> I than love that. It. I'm glad you said that. Thank you. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Right. It is, it may not be the, the rate limiting factor in testosterone production. That's a, maybe that's a thing we'll, we'll get into, but let me, okay. So let me ask you this. What, talk to me about um, minimum effective dose for protein. Yeah. So, um, broadly, one of the suggestions I make is trying to find your, your minimal effective dose of animal products. And, uh, this was first on my list because if you close your eyes and just point to anything that matters in the food system, like at raising a farm animals influences that, that area. And the way we raise farm animals right now, especially in developed countries, is just very, it's very resource intensive and there's a lot of uh, negative externalities with it. Um, so it's one of the big areas for modification that we can improve the food system. And I phrased it as uh, find your minimum effective dose because in learning about human physiology and working with a lot of different people, I, I don't think everybody thrives with zero animal products. Um, I think some people, uh, physiologically speaking, just do a little bit better with some animal products in their diet. Uh, I think some people live in areas where they can't grow a lot of crop products and they have to rely on more seafood or animal foods. So I, I don't like the idea of just saying eliminate animal products or only eat this many animal products, but just try to minimize. So wherever you're at, if there's a possibility to find a lower amount where you can still be happy and healthy and sane and participate in your cultural food traditions and uh, engage with your family and not be ridiculed by friends and all that stuff, try to find that, that dose of animal products. Yeah, it can be a little socially weird, I would think, too. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, I'm, I'm in a big city. Um, people don't tend, it, it wouldn't be weird to say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to eat all, um, all non-animal products, for example. But I imagine if I were back in Alberta, for example, um, I, get, I get looked at sideways for doing that. Um, again, we sort of have this cultural investment in it. Um, what are, what are some tweaks that we can make about, you know, how we get food, how we consume that, that you think are pretty easy to make and pretty practical for people? Uh, and this, you're referring to any food, just how we acquire food? 
and do it in a more kind of sustainable, ethical way? I I probably, honestly, I probably solve protein on the mind, but yeah, like, yeah, I'll, I'll take anything. I'll take whatever you got. That's, that's easy because you know, the way I, I think about it personally for what it is worth is, Hey, what do I feel like I need to thrive? Okay. Now that I've set that, is there a way to get that, um, that is friendlier to the rest of the world that has less of an impact, feels kind of less, less userous. So that's where I'm coming from here. Yeah. I, um, I would say one of the, if somebody is kind of coming at it for the very first time with an open mind, I mean, if, if the idea of building a meal without any animal products is really a foreign concept to them, uh, try starting with a single meal and exploring some new combinations or recipes. And I know, while that might sound like a very pathetic first step to make, like, <laughs> oh gosh, that's terrible. But it, I, I teach a class at a college and I, ha- I have the students do an experiment where they uh, try to eat fewer animal products for a day and just see how it goes and, t- and write about it and reflect on it. And I'm always shocked at the 99% of them don't know what to eat. They're, right. when, they're, when they're not focusing the meal around whatever, pick your animal protein of choice, like a big burger or steak or chicken breast or piece of fish or whatever it is, they don't really know what to put on the plate. <laughs> so that's gone. Now, what do I do? Just like have extra salad or extra cut up fruit or like, what do I do? So that's in developed countries, we're kind of conditioned to building a meal, building a plate with the centerpiece and the main event being an animal protein source. So if that is sounds like you and you're kind of thinking, gosh, I don't really know even how to build a meal, start to experiment with different combinations. I mean, uh, this is where exploring, you know, recipe books and different cultural cuisines and people who are talking about this on social media can be really useful for ideas or maybe people in your own family uh, network, your friends might have some ideas and just try it once, once a day, a few times a week, see how it goes. I remember I was reading through your book and I had a moment where like, yeah, why am I not eating more beans? Why, why are there not more legumes in my life? And, and I think you kind of described it as, as the food pyramid almost being inverted compared to uh, tradition. The uh, beans, <laughs> beans, I spend a disproportionate amount of my life thinking about legumes. <laughs> um, so it's really one of those swaps in developed countries, especially that if we could simply start to ease up our overall legume intake and at the same time slightly ease down our meat intake it would have such a ripple effect on animal welfare and ecosystems and farm worker welfare and soil health and water pollution like it's and even our health and chronic disease prevention it checks so many boxes and uh it's also i mean beans tend to be inexpensive they fit into a lot of cultural food traditions they're satisfying uh so I, I would say try to move up, uh, ratchet up your bean intake. I mean, in the U.S., average American eater eats about 10 pounds of beans per year. I don't know if that means anything to your listeners, but you can compare that. That's uh, much, much lower than meat intake. Meat intake is about 191 pounds per year. So 191 pounds to 10 pounds. If we can just kind of bring that a little bit more in balance, that would go a really, really long way for uh, the food system. Yeah, and beans are uh, reasonably easy to get, uh, canned or dried. Um, 
you might, I'm trying to think back, you know, uh, what you may not know if you're listening is, you know, Ryan's authored textbooks or co-authored textbooks on, on nutrition. I, I think I may have learned from you, you know, the difference between uh, an allergy and a food intolerance, uh, which, which is significant. So let's just say you're into it in principle and uh, you like beans or certainly know how to, how to cook them. So they're delicious. Uh, but you get a rumbly tummy or you get gassy. Like, how do you, how do you address that? How can we make it a little more uh, digestible for folks? That's a, I mean, that's a valid concern. Uh, with our low overall legume intake and generally kind of low fiber intake, if somebody all of a sudden overnight starts to eat a lot of high fiber foods, including legumes, it can lead to some um, digestive challenges, bloating. It can be really uncomfortable. Um, so if it's just a, if it's a situation where the GI tract is kind of adjusting to this new level of, of legumes and fiber, there are a, a couple of things you can do. Um, one is to maybe try a, a smaller amount. So if you go from none to like two, three cups, two or three cups cooked, slow down a little bit, try maybe a quarter cup, half cup cooked for a week or two, see how it goes, and then gradually increase from there. Because your the ecosystem in your gut can change over time and you can actually get better at digesting them so give your body a little bit of time to adjust so that's one thing just take it slow the other thing is to try different types so some people might try pinto beans and they feel terrible some and they try red lentils and they feel great so just exploring kind of the different uh, individual choices under the the legume umbrella and then you can also double check and make sure you're preparing them correctly. So if you are getting dried and you're not doing adequate soaking and cooking, that might lead to some, some extra digestive problems as well. So just take a, take those few steps and, uh, it, sh it should help. And if it doesn't, and you really have tried everything, this is where the idea of finding your minimal effective dose of animal products comes into play. You might not be able to include a lot of certain plant foods and you have to keep certain animal products in. Yeah. It's to me, it feels like, uh, someone who says, you know, I, I'm, I haven't been exercising at all. I'm kind of out of shape. I want to take up running. Cool. Cool. I'm going to start. Awesome. I think I'll do, you know, 25 K. Whoa. Like, you know, <laughs> right, right. slow, slow your roll a little bit. Your point is well taken. If you have had a low fiber diet, if your body's not used to eating these things, you may not be able to just you know, uh, lean your body weight into the lever and, and crank it up to a hundred. The idea of running small experiments for your nutrition, for, for health in general, um, I think is really important because all, all we can start with is, is a good sort of general game plan. Um, are there any other sort of, um, ideas you have around individualizing or, or just kind of tweaking stuff to really fit your body and your preferences? Well, I do love experimentation is such a wonderful way to frame things. I try to always remind myself of that if I'm if I'm getting into something that feels really overwhelming and it seems like I have to do it forever and always and it's daunting. Looking at it as a temporary experiment kind of frees me up a bit. Uh, in terms of individualizing the the animal products a little bit more, um, what comes to mind is a lot of people it's this it's the planning and having ideas in place so if you can i'm a big believer in having a default go-to meal combinations 
instead of just being in the moment, you're hungry, you've had a long day and you need to figure out what to eat and you haven't really thought of it yet, that can be overwhelming. So if you have a go-to list of like, these are my two breakfasts I always like to eat, these are my four lunches, these are my like five to six dinners I rotate through, then you kind of have this list, this go-to list of tasty, satisfying, nutritious meals. And this can change based on the season, based on your preferences, based on where you're living, whatever. But having that go-to list of meals, I think can really go a long way for people. Yeah. And having stuff that is convenient ultimately. And I think that's as much uh, ado as people make about sort of ethical choices or philosophical choices. I think a, a lot of us, myself included, often the real limiter is, is just convenience. Um, is it there ready for me? Is it easy to eat? Um, if we're, if we're over consuming food that we know is not particularly good for us, odds are it's just tasty prepared food that's, that's in the house. Um, maybe this is a good segue actually into, you know, processed food is a, is a pretty broad term. Um, and it's not all, it's not all bad either. Um, could you talk a bit about what, what that means and maybe a way to break that down with a little more clarity? Uh, yes. And I, I, before we move on from your last point, I think it's a wonderful point because when you're looking at this as a, at a societal level, really you, it's hard to expect more of people when they don't have the choice around them. That's easy to do. So it's like, oh, that those people need to eat more plant foods. Like, what if they don't, there's no plant foods around to eat. Uh, so I think that's a wonderful point. Okay. Uh, processed foods. Uh, there's this spectrum from uh, really unprocessed all the way up to ultra processed foods. And a lot of us are familiar with foods on the spectrum. Uh, minimally processed are things like rolled oats uh, or like frozen broccoli. So they've they're not just straight from the field, but they've gone through a little bit of processing. And then when you get into the really uh, highly or ultra processed foods, that's when it's more unrecognizable from the original food source. So that's when the corn has been processed into corn meal or corn flour, and it's now part of a like, breakfast cereal, and you don't even really recognize it or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and when you look at places like the UK, the US, Canada, uh, average person, more than half of their diet is made up of these ultra processed foods. So like a lot of like chips and cookies and candies and fast foods and stuff like that. That's really the foundation of our, of our diet in developed countries. Um, and it's even becoming more, more prominent in developing countries as well. And this is really problematic for our own health because it doesn't signal the same satiety cues. You don't eat it and think, yeah, that was good. I'm satisfied now. It just kind of makes you want to keep eating it. So it leads to some, some personal health concerns. Uh, and also a lot of the ingredients in these ultra processed foods are often coming from uh, palm oil, like oil palms or from sugar beets, sugar cane. And they're grown in places with a lot of chemical inputs, a lot of irrigation water, a lot of uh, polluting runoff. And so it's like a lose-lose a, a situation. It's not great for our health. It's not great for the, for the food system and the ecosystem as well. So getting, uh, checking in with your ultra processed food intake and trying to scale it back a little bit, uh, can really go a long way for so many things. 
Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you, you were speaking before about, well, we're sort of in this environment, right? It's, it's not your fault. Like if it's not convenient, maybe to get healthier food choices, it's not, that's not what you asked for. This is the environment you inherited. We have these, these massive, you know, multinational conglomerates pumping this stuff out and they want you to, they want you to buy it and they want to fill, you know, grocery stores with it. And, um, eating healthier food can, um, never, you know, impact aside, uh, can, is, is sort of by design often um, less convenient here. So let me ask you this. Um, you know, we vote with our dollars and we, we, we vote by buying things. Um, who do you think we should be supporting? What, where should we be putting our money when it comes to buying food? There's a couple ways to think about it. So supporting farmers who are doing things in a more sustainable way would be the, the top of the mountain. That would be like the pinnacle of choice. Uh, and there are ways to do that. There are certain, um, certifications in the U S so there are third-party certifications you can look for. If you're shopping at a kind of a typical supermarket that gives you a shortcut of knowing this was probably grown in a, in a more sustainable and ethical way. Uh, you can also do this and kind of cut out the middleman and go to the farm, go to a farmer's market, um, and, check in with the farmer, talk to them how they're growing things and buy the food directly from that farmer. Those, I mean, if we can support farmers who are managing soil, managing water in a more sustainable way, treating workers in a more ethical way, that would go a really long way towards improving the food system. That one, and I, I talk about this in, in Soil Planet a bit, it's definitely one of the most important things to do, but I think with how we acquire food in today's world, where the first time we usually see it is at the grocery store, at the supermarket, it's hard to really know what happened before then. So uh, this can be one of the more challenging things for people to do because it's you start to think, well, do I believe the certification or the logo that says it was mm. you know sustainably produced? What's going on with that? Is there actual validation, background checking on that? Um, so it gets a little tricky, and this is where uh the the value of having bandwidth and time and energy and money to maybe go to a farmer's market is wonderful but it's a pretty i think small group of the overall population that can do something like that so it this is where if if i had you know a magic wand and i could say we could just create uh some sort of a a farming policy where you know that the food is coming from farmers doing it the sustainable and ethical way, then great. Then you wouldn't have to rely on the on the eater to figure it all out themselves. And so often the buck gets passed to the individual consumer. You know, can I, may I rant? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just right now, there's so many um, conspiracy theories floating around and they claim some kind of complex and super secret level of organization and hidden evils. And meanwhile, you know, um, half of the world's plastic waste is single-use plastics. Meanwhile, all these, you know, the petrochemical industry has done a number on us uh, by saying, oh, no, just recycle it. It's fine. It's basically the same. Of all plastics ever produced, about 8 to 12% have ever been recycled. So very, very, very few have been recycled. You're making me think of something here. Um, <laughs> I, I think about this a lot because 
uh, oftentimes I've been really focused on helping people do things better in their own lives. So kind of like the bottom up movement. And I, I definitely think we need as many people who are able to make better, more sustainable ethical choices. I think we need those people on board right now. Um, but th I, this is this is the time for people who are running businesses and they are in politics. We need you now more than ever to make it easier for everybody else uh, to to do the right thing, to shape the path, to get on the more sustainable path. So I don't, to me, it's like we need everybody doing what they can on the front lines. We also need people top down, making it easier for those people on the front lines. We need like left to right, right to left. We need chefs and food service directors and doctors, like everybody involved thinking about these things. Like, how can I educate my patients? How can I work with my clients? How can I run my business? How can I run my cafeteria? Just if we could all kind of move towards this uh, ultimate goal of doing things in a more sustainable, ethical way, it would make it easier for everybody and not just say, well, eh, I'll let them deal with it. <laughs> yeah, it's often, yeah, that's, that's what I'll hear from individuals. Like we need change. We need, you know, we need the government to do this. I think if we're waiting for top-down change, especially when there are lobbyists involved, especially when, um, there are sociopaths with, you know, who have a financial advantage and some leverage, like it's just not going to happen uh, particularly easily. So I think we, we do have to ask ourselves from a, from a bottom up perspective in terms of small actions, you know, what are these things? And so, you know, we talked about making it a little more convenient for, for you. You're talking about on a bit, you know, I'm, you know, business owner, I think about well, what are we buying? What are we promoting? And when I get stuff thrown at me all the time, like, or somebody actually pitched me a couple of weeks ago and said, Hey, um, we have this amazing, this mineral water and it's, um, ethically sourced. And in fact, we have them in Tetra Pak, So it's more environmentally friendly. It's sourced in France. And I'm like, well, hold on. I don't know if you can claim, um, environmentally, uh, friendly when you're, when you're shipping, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of water. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe, maybe yeah. that's not the call. Water is heavy. Um, that's one of the problems with delivering irrigation water, let alone shipping bottled water. Um, and then, yeah, it, that's a good example of a company maybe doing something different and they think it's a better choice. But in the city where they're sending the Tetra Packs, like, do they even have a recycling program for that material? Is it, is it possible to be recycled there? Uh, so it's, I mean, all of this food system stuff is extremely uh, complex, that's for sure. Indeed. Um, I'm glad you're on it. I think you're one of the good guys, Ryan. Um, can you, can you tell us about, uh, where to buy Swole Planet? What you'll, what you'll learn from this book? You can, uh, check out Swole Planet, ryandandrews.com. I have uh, a little bit more background about what you'll find in the book, uh, cause it goes beyond nutrition. It, uh, I, I do offer for these big five dietary adjustments and these are dietary adjustments that I do feel like collectively, if we made this change, it would make a really, really big difference. Um, and I, I would say overall, the the data supports those changes. So some information on nutrition. I talk a little bit about movement. I actually have uh, some workout programs and I have a couple of ideas on how you can slightly, I'm a little intimidated about talking about movement with, <laughs> with Jeff, oh, but geez. um, a couple of ideas around movement, whether it's using 
movement in a purposeful way, like to get around, to run errands, to get to the store, building that into your workout routine, I think goes a long way for minimizing your reliance on cars and things like that. And then also if you can um, schedule a day of active recovery, volunteering, like on a farm or at an urban garden, that's a great way to get connected to food, learn more about food. Also, you're moving your body in different ways. You're lunging and pulling and twisting and bending and all this stuff. So it's, it's a nice, uh, win-win kind of situation. And then I, in the final section of the book, I have really some big picture things to think about uh, a couple things about the history of the food system and some other big changes we can think about, maybe incorporate in our, in our lives. And then I also wrap up with what I like and don't like about vegan diets. So I elaborate a bit on what we were talking about earlier. Okay. Yeah. Um, I got, I got a lot out of it. And again, I just want to say it cause it's gotta be said, it's not dogmatic. It's, it's taking what is important to you and just helping you kind of tweak it along these lines. Yeah. I was, I was just thinking as you were talking about, uh, the act of farming, you know, as, as someone who runs a gym, we, we have, um, moved away, uh, deliberately from, you know, everybody needing to be involved in, in physical labor, uh, agricultural or other, uh, in their daily lives to the point where, you know, people now pay a premium to sort of, to, uh, recreate the act of, of physical labor, um, in a specialized facility. You can also go, you know, move, move some <laughs> hay around, feed some animals. Like there's, there's, there's lots to be done. Uh, farm boy strong is not a, uh, is not just an expression. It's a real thing. Yeah, I, I do. This is one of those other things I spend quite a bit of time thinking about. Um, I, I almost, I don't know how it's set up in Canada, but we have uh, jury duty in the United States. So you'll get a letter and you have to go in for jury duty every so often. And I feel like we need to create something like farm duty where like you get a letter and you're like, you got to go work two weeks on a farm every year. And then you get a box of produce in return or like some sort of collective oh, labor man. efforts where we're all contributing to the, to the hard work of farming and not just like, yeah, we'll push it off onto somebody else. Yeah, go get in the food chain. You know what? There are a lot of companies, uh, uh, Starbucks comes to mind, but there are a lot of places where you sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, one phrase is like work all four corners, but it's like, you've got to spend time in every role and every position. Even if you're in senior management, you come and you learn how to, you know, pull shots and grind beans and everything uh, because it gives everyone a greater appreciation for, for the entire system. Um, so if we can buy into that, as a business and there's a value there in understanding, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't know how to make that practical, but I'm in like, I'm in, in principle to understand, Hey, like this is part of the food chain. I think, um, yeah, I can, I can see, I, you know, I can feel like I would learn a lot from, from doing that. Oh gosh, am I going to do it now? There's a question. <laughs> um, and there, and, and that's where we get into convenience again. And I think I'll just kind of, I'll mention this from, from sort of a behavior design uh, perspective. This is often where, where we struggle with any kind of nutritional or lifestyle change. It's like, okay, I have the motivation right now. I don't have infinite motivation. I've got a little bit, I've got the interest. Um, and now I'm prompted now I actually want to do something, but it's not, I can't just go to a site and go, Hey, sign, sign me up. I'm going to go, you know, spend some time, um, on a farm. So that's, that's something to think about. Like, how do we make this stuff more, more convenient and accessible too? I guess, I guess the short version is, uh, go to farmer's markets and make, uh, at the very least, uh, make friends with farmers. Maybe they, uh, they could use a hand. A lot of farms, uh, I have spent quite a bit of time helping on farms over the past decade. And most of the places I've reached out to are excited and ready for your help. Uh, every so often it'll be, they'll make you jump through some hoops and it, it's a little tedious, but, um, but yeah, most of the time they're really appreciative of uh, people helping out. It's really cool. 
Well, listen, man, I appreciate you. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad we were able to wrangle you on here. It's nice to, uh, it's nice to see you. It's nice to catch up. Yeah. Really good to catch up. I've always, uh, really valued your perspective on things. I was actually just thinking about how you, you were thinking about like holistic movement before I knew anybody else thinking about holistic movement and how it could, how it could benefit all these things. Almost like we were talking about the food system, but thinking about, uh, not only staying healthy for many years, but bringing your performance up and strength up. And so um, really, really impressive. So glad, uh, glad I've known you. I appreciate that, man. Yeah, I think we're both just trying to zoom and do the same stuff. Hey, we want you to have big biceps. Nobody's saying, no, yes. and we want to facilitate that. We just want to take more of a 360 degree, you know, view on, on, uh, on getting those sick guns. <laughs> All right, thank you. Thanks a lot, Ryan. What a lovely man. When I grow up, I want to be more like Ryan Andrews. Uh, he is really fighting the good fight. He walks the talk. And, uh, you know, I said this at the beginning. I always feel like a better human being after I speak to him. Uh, you should check out Swole Planet. Uh, you can download that uh, from his site. Uh, I'll have that in the show notes. Uh, great book. Uh, you may find that there are some ways to improve your health and fitness outcomes that are also wins for the environment, for how we do things. Thank you for hanging out with us today. Thank you to the Unlearning Network, to our sponsor, Othership, and big thanks to Ryan Andrews for joining us. We'll see you soon.